0: Welcome to Parker Memorial's podcast of the 830 AM service. Our service includes modern style worship and an on-time message from God's Word by Dr. Mac Amos. Now, here's this week's message.
1: If you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and be turning to Isaiah chapter nine. We spent the entire fall and most of part of the winter of going through what we call the gospel according to Isaiah 53. Went verse by verse through that of explaining about how Isaiah 53 points to, without a shadow of a doubt, the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. Well, I think it'd be appropriate here at Christmas then that we would use Isaiah also to point to the Christmas story. For see, it's not just Isaiah 53 that talks about the Christmas story or talks about the salvation and the Messiah, but also Isaiah chapter 9. We don't need to read it For my brother who just said the off to prayer. He quoted it for us. Thank you, Danny. Lord put our minds together, but he quoted that. Many of the verses there, he's quoted. We're going to go through that. We're going to focus on Isaiah 9 as far as the Christmas story and the gospel that's presented. And there are about four truths that I want you to understand and a very important question. And I'm going to ask you at the end. I want you to see, first of all, there in verse uh, chapter 9, verse 1. I want to see what it says. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. Let me stop there for just a minute and talk about Isaiah. Isaiah was, lived about 700 years before the coming of Christ. He lived in a time when he was both a prophet for Israel and a prophet for Judah. Now, you have to remember that this was the time of the divided kingdom. There had been a, king, a kingdom where it had been just one king over it. That was Saul and David and Solomon. After the fact, there became a divided kingdom and there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And this prophet Isaiah is prophesying towards and against Israel and also against Judah. And what he said so far in, his, in this letter he's writing, he's pretty well pronounced the fact that judgment is coming upon them. Judgment is coming upon them. In chapter 8, he specifically identifies that judgment is coming upon Damascus and Samaria. And Samaria was the capital of Israel. And so he was saying this judgment of God is coming. And that would paint a gloom picture, a gloom picture that this is happening and the judgment of God is coming. But then right in the midst of that, here in chapter 9, he gives them a word of promise. He gives to them a word of truth. Here's what he says. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he, talking about God, treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land... The light will shine on them. Now, you've probably heard this quoted before. And many times when it's quoted, people will point out that this is talking about the wise men. That the Magi, when they were out in the east and and they saw the star of Bethlehem, that they were traveling over because they were in a dark land and they saw the light of God. Well, that may be applied, but that's not specifically what this is talking about. This is, is Isaiah speaking to a Jewish audience. He's not talking anything about the wise men. He's talking about a Jewish audience, and he's announcing a coming of a Messiah. And he says this, in the land, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, if you have your Bibles and you have m- maps in the back of your Bibles, it might be helpful to hold your hand here a minute. Look in the back of your Bible at a map. Especially if you have a map in the Bible that, that divides up Israel and the 12 tribes of Israel or the land that was given to the 12 tribes. See, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the sons of Jacob, and they were two of the sons who had received the land, and they were two tribes, and they received a portion of the land. And their particular land, if you look on that map, is located right up near the Sea of Galilee. Near the Sea of Galilee, just to the east of the, west of the Sea of Galilee, and all around the north part of the Sea of Galilee is Zebulun and Naphtali. Now that means since they're located there in that northern part, they were a part of the nation of Israel. They were a part of that kingdom of Israel. Remember, it's a divided kingdom. And Israel and Judah. Well, Israel was the more evil one than Judah. Israel was so evil that God actually has them destroyed and has them carried over and defeated by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. 722 B.C. The 10 tribes that made up Israel, they were defeated. The Assyrians carried them off. And at that time, Isaiah was warning Judah, hey, if you don't change your heart, you don't change your mind, you're going to get judged too. You need to learn from your older sister and your evil sister and not be like her and change your heart. Well, you know what? They didn't learn from it. Because they continue to do evil. And in 587 BC, they were defeated by the Babylonians and carried off in exile by Nebuchadnezzar. But if you were to compare those two, Israel and Judah, Israel was far more evil than Judah was. Judah did have some good kings and had revivals and and would turn back to God. Israel seemed to have a whole bad kings. And they were all about themselves. And they were so wicked that they had to be defeated in 722 BC. So hold on a second. If you were to imagine in your mind that God's going to send a Messiah, he's gonna send somebody who's gonna be the answer to the world and the need for the world, where do you think that he would send that particular Messiah? Well, if I were thinking, I'd think it's gonna be down there in Judah. It's gonna be in the southern kingdom, why? Because they were better than the northern kingdom. And also, many of the spiritual sites Of Israel were located in the southern kingdom Jerusalem where the temple was built Bethlehem which was the promised place for the Messiah to be born it was also the place of Bethel and Gilgal and Hebron and all those significant spiritual places they were all in the south so you think surely whenever God sends his messenger and God sends his Savior it's going to he's going to come to the south That's what Isaiah 9 is so surprising. It's an unlikely place that the Messiah is going to come. He said it's the unlikely place. It's going to be the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Even though he treated them with contempt and they were defeated because they were evil, he's going to shine upon them. Hear that? Look what it says there, verse 1. That land of Zebulun and Naphtali viewed with contempt, but later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the, land on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. It tells us this, that you know where God's going to reveal his glory? You know where it's going to be the first place that the glory of God in the Messiah is going to be revealed? It's not going to be in the south. It's not going to be in Judah. It's going to be in the north. It's going to be in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Well, in the land of Zebulun, you know what city's there? The city of Nazareth. What is that? That's the home city, the hometown of who? Of Jesus, who is the Messiah. Not only that, do you know that also Cana is in the land of Zebulun? Do you know what Cana is, where it was? It's the place where the first miracle of Jesus was performed. So, the first miracle revealing the glory of God takes place in the land of Zebulun. But that's not all. So much of Jesus' ministry takes place right there around the Sea of Galilee. His home base was Capernaum, which is right there on the Sea of Galilee. Think about all the things that happened there on the Sea of Galilee. He walked on the water. He told them to fish on the other side. And all kinds of fish were collected and men were called to him. He not only that, he goes across it to the Gadaree. And there he sets the Gadarean demoniac. He sits on the hillside that is overlooking Galilee and he teaches the Sermon on the Mount. On the north side, you go to what is called Caesarea Philippi, where the glorious confession of faith is made by Peter about Jesus. And also Mount Hermon is there, which is thought to be the place of the Mount of Transfiguration that took place right halfway between when he was born and the Garden of Gethsemane that revealed the glory of God. All of that glorious experiences of God... Happen in the land of Israel, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtala. That's why it says they are a dark people, a dark land, but they will see a great light, and that light will shine on them. He pronounced that whenever you see that light, that light is going to be found in the land of Zebulun, Naphtala, and Israel. Now, that is the most unlikely place. For the glory of God and the Messiah to show up. I mean, it didn't deserve it, right? It didn't warrant it. There was nothing that was on the checklist that said, this ought to be the place. But still, God revealed his glory first in that place. Now, let me tell you what that says to you and me. Just as Israel did not deserve the glory of God to shine upon it so do neither do we <laughs> neither do we i mean we're sinners right we're sinners we've missed out we failed and we certainly are not are not deserving of the glory of god showing up in us But whenever we see what he did with Israel, even though he had viewed them with contempt because of their sin, he lets the glory of God first be seen there. We can stand in line and say, even though I am not worthy, even though I'm not deserving, God can shine his glory and his light in me. I'm so thankful for that. (laughs) If I had to be worthy of the grace of God, if I had to be worthy of the salvation of Christ, I could never, ever measure up But just as Israel was not worthy but chosen, so even though I'm not worthy, or you're not worthy, you can experience the glory of God. Well, look what he says then about this light that's going to shine. He says this is a light that's going to shine. He's specifically talking about Messiah. Therefore, when we later hear that Jesus says, whenever he's teaching his disciples, he said he's what? He said he's the light of the world. Jesus is tying himself back to what I said in Isaiah chapter 9. That light that shines in darkness, that light is Jesus, for he is the light of the world. Well, what is this light of the world? What is this Messiah? What's he going to do? Here's the first thing it says he's going to do. He's going to establish a nation. A nation that multiplies, a nation that grows. We we say it a different way sometimes. We talk about a kingdom. A kingdom. A kingdom and a nation are the same thing. And we talk about the kingdom of God, the nation of God. Notice what he says in verse 3. Thou shalt, talking about this Messiah, thou shalt multiply, this is important, the nation. Now, why is that important? Because he didn't say you're going to multiply the nations. (laughs) That there's going to be more and more nations and more and more people. It says nation, singular. He says, you're going to multiply the nation, or you're going to multiply the kingdom. This one who's coming, this light to the world, is going to be one who's going to establish a nation and a kingdom. Not not many kingdoms, a nation and a kingdom. And that's what Jesus said when he came. He said he came to establish a kingdom. Not of this world, an eternal kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. That's what Jesus came to establish, and that's what he did. He says, thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness. Now, this nation that he establishes, what are some of the characteristics of that nation? Look at verse 7. It tells you about that nation. Here it is. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. When he establishes his nation, his kingdom, that spiritual kingdom, there will be no end to it. You know, in in our history, and if you've studied world history, you know there's the rise and fall of all the kingdoms. I mean, they rule and they reign. And when Rome was in charge, they thought Rome would rule forever. Rome didn't rule forever. They think this one's going to rule forever. They up and they are down. They ebb and they flow. But not with this kingdom. Not with this kingdom that this one who's going to establish. This kingdom will have no end. No end to its increase, and his government of his government are of peace. There will be no end. And I'm here to tell you from the very time Jesus came, that Messiah came and established his kingdom, it has never ended. That kingdom exists today. All over the world, that kingdom exists. Now, the world tries to press it down, the enemy tries to defeat it, the world tries to persecute it, but it doesn't matter. It is never ending. And it will continue and continue and multiply. And eventually and ultimately, when Jesus comes again, he will establish his kingdom upon this earth. It is a kingdom in the spiritual world now. It's a kingdom in the hearts of men now. But it is going to be the kingdom of this world. No, what it says. Increase of his government and of peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. What does he tell you there? He tells you this is going to be a Jewish king. He's not going to be a, a secular king. Not be a Gentile king. He's going to be a Jewish king. And it's a fulfillment of what God said to David when he said, because you've been faithful to me, you're going to have somebody who's going to sit on your throne. And so this is going to be a Jewish king. Not only that, he's going to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. His kingdom is just And his kingdom is righteous. And it will always be just and righteous. You know, it's interesting when you read history, whether it be biblical history or secular history, you ever notice that some people can start out well, they just don't end well? (laughs) I mean, somebody will start out to be a righteous person, a good person, a good ruler, and then something happens and corrupts them. It seems like people can't start well, live well, and end well. They mess up somewhere along the way. But not him. Not him. His will always be just. His will always be righteous. What it says, from then on and forevermore, it will never change what kind of kingdom, what kind of nation, what kind of world he is going to establish. That's the government. That's the life. That's the world that he's going to create in the kingdom that he establishes. Well, What does this kingdom do in the life of a person who chooses to join it? That's important. What happens in a person's life who becomes a part of this kingdom? Go back to verse number 3. It says this. Thou shalt multiply the nation. And here it is. Here's the first thing. Thou shalt increase their gladness. Thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence. Do you know what coming into relationship with this king, with this Messiah, with this promise, you know what it's gonna do? It's gonna put gladness in your heart. And you know why you're glad? Because you have the opportunity to be in his presence. Wow. When you enter into that kingdom, there's gonna be a gladness of heart. Something happens in you, something changes in you, and you're glad just to be in his presence. Just to have him near you, just to walk with him. Wow, what an experience that is to be able to have that kind of gladness in your heart. He says, it's a type of gladness such as this. Look at verse 3. It's a gladness like of harvest. I don't know how many of you have ever farmed, or I guess some of you probably had gardens. But what is the gladness of harvest? The gladness of harvest is a gladness of satisfaction you worked hard, you planted the seed, you tilled it, you hoeed it, you did whatever you needed to, and finally when the harvest comes, you're glad because you're satisfied. You reaped rewards for your labor, and there's that satisfaction type of gladness. He said the gladness of your heart when you know and you enter into this kingdom is as a gladness of satisfaction. I don't know a sweeter word in all of the English language than the word satisfied. Just to be satisfied. He said, his gladness is going to satisfy your heart. But that's not all. He says, also, it's like the gladness of one who has divided the spoil. When do you divide the spoil? When you win the victory. Amen? When you win the victory, you get to divide the spoil. And he said, there's no gladness like the gladness of victory. How many of y'all like to win? I do. I love to win. I like for my teams to win. I feel good when my teams win, and I have to pray when my teams don't win. Amen? (laughs) I like to win. There's no feeling like the feeling of victory, and that victory that you really have is the victory you have when you meet the Messiah, when you meet the one who's the light of the world, when he comes into your heart and your life. He gives you that joy, that gladness of victory. And, And here's the neat thing about this gladness that you have. It says, you have a gladness of victory like the harvest. The gladness of the uh, harvest are like victory. And he says, this is why and how you're able to experience that. This is what happens to you. Look at verse 4. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders and the rod of the oppressor. Do you know the reason you have gladness? He says, because this Messiah is going to do something for you. And here's the first thing he's going to do. He's going he's to break that yoke of burden that is in your life and on your life. Do you know, what the yoke, you know what that burden or yoke of burden is in our lives? Jesus told us, it's the burden of sin. It's the burden of sin. It's not a burden somebody's pressing you on the outside. It's a burden on the inside. You can try to run from the one on the outside, but you can't get away from the one on the inside. And there's that yoke of this burden of sin that is on your life. He says, not only is there sin that bears a burden on your life, he says, there's also an evil shepherd who watches over you. And that's the old enemy, old Satan. You know what he does? He uses his, his staff and he uses his rod against you. Now, a staff and a rod are intended to be good instruments for the good shepherd to protect their sheep. But if you have an abusive shepherd, he uses the rod and he uses the staff to be cruel towards the sheep. And he said, our problem is because we're in sin, we're in the wrong flock. And we're in the wrong flock with an abusive shepherd. And he takes the staff and he beats us with the staff and he, and he oppresses us with his rod. And that's not where we need to be. And it's hard to have gladness of heart when that's happening to you. But this one, this Messiah is going to come. He's going to break the yoke of burden. He's gonna take away that rod and that staff from the evil one, and he has become, as he pronounced, I am the good shepherd who knows my sheep and who watches over my sheep and who will care for you and who will lay down my life for you. How could we not be glad when the yoke of sin is, and burden is broken and when a new shepherd who would lay down his life for me takes a hold of the staff and the rod. We should have a gladness in our heart. Well, how does this happen? How does it take place? It says he's going to do it. Look there in verse 4. Like at the Battle of Midian. You were in the Battle of Midian. You remember who it was that fought at the Battle of Midian? His name was Gideon. Gideon. You remember the story of Gideon, don't you? Gideon was the judge who was supposed to go fight the enemy. And whenever he goes to fight the enemy, he calls all of Israel together to come and to fight against the enemy. The enemy was about 135,000 men, (laughs) the Midianites, 135,000. You got that number? When he called all the people of Israel together, there were only 32,000. 32,000 against 135,000. Are you good at math? If you're good at math, that means that everybody has to kill four people apiece just to be even. Amen? That's right. But God told Gideon, you got too many. He said, send the ones who are afraid home. Okay, guys, if you're afraid, go home. 22,000 of them left. That left him 10,000 against 135,000. You got the math? That means now everyone's got to kill 13 and a half just to break even. Right? God said, you still got too many. You got too many. He said, I want you to have them to drink water. The one who put their face in the water and the one who laps with a do- like a dog, picking it up in their hands. He says, the one who puts their face in the water, you send them home. The ones who picks the water up in their hand and laps it like a dog, you will keep them. Now, if I'd have been Gideon, I'd have probably been coaching some of them up. What'd you do? Huh. Hey, lap, 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 lap. Wouldn't you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we try to help God out, don't we? We do. Do you know what? There were only 300 who lapped like a dog. 9,700 went home. You do the math. 300 against 135,000. Wow. God said, just enough. Because the victory is not going to be at the hand of Israel, it's going to be my victory. And if you had too many men, you'd get the credit. This is for God to get the credit. And you know the story. They go out there at night and they have a torch, a a pitcher and a torch and a trumpet. I guess those 300 had to be able to play the trumpet. When I was reading that this week, I thought, man, I'm going to have to learn how to play a trumpet. I'm kidding. But, I mean, they all played the trumpet. They all played the trumpet. My wife's hoping I don't learn to play the trumpet. I tried the saxophone one time until she hit it. She back there? She is back there. You know what? They sat and broke the pitcher, shined the torch, blew the horn, and said, "For God and Gideon," and God did all the fighting. They didn't have to raise. They didn't have to raise their sword at all. It says what Jesus is going to do, what this Messiah is going to do, what this light of the world is going to do, he's going to break that yoke and he's going to set you free, not because of what you've done, what he does, what he does. And then he says, after that, he says, and all the boot of the booted warrior, the battle toolment and the cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for fire. You know, what it says the fighting is over. You don't have to have to fight again. The fighting is over. All those instruments of war, they're going to be burned up. We won't be fighting anymore because his victory is the ultimate victory. Isn't that true? You know, some of our problems, we think Jesus got us in the door, we think we got to get their arrest away. Oh, no, that was the Galatian problem. <laughs> Paul said to Galatians, you are saved by faith, but you're trying to be perfected by works. We're not perfected by works. God doesn't expect to do it. He just expects us to believe Him to do it. God, you started it. God, you have to finish it. My only hope is in you. My only hope is in you. But He is ever faithful. He is ever faithful. That's why it says this How does this take place? How does this take place? Very quickly. I mean, this Messiah, he's going to come to Israel. This Messiah is going to do so much, going to give gladness. How is it going to take place? Here it is. Listen, verse five, and verse six, I'm sorry. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Do you know how we're going to have it? Do you know how that's going to happen? He's going to be a child. It's going to be a son who is going to be born to us. Isaiah prophesied at 700 years before the birth of Jesus that there was going to be a child born, a son that was given to the Jewish nation who would be the Messiah, who would be the light of the world, and who would do everything Isaiah said he would do. He goes on and describes this. He says, what? He says, a child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will rest on his shoulders. He's got the total responsibility for it all. And you want to know who he is? He gives us some titles. His name will be called Wonderful. (laughs) I like that Sandy Patty song, More Than Wonderful. He is more than wonderful, but isn't he wonderful? He said he's wonderful. Here's how wonderful he is. He was wonderful in his birth. He was born of a virgin. Amen? Is that wonder? He was wonderful in his life. He performed miracles and brought people back to life and did things nobody else could do. He was wonderful in his death, for he died and like a lamb to slaughter. He did not revile when reviled, but laid his life down willingly. He was wonderful in his resurrection, for he did not stay dead. He resurrected three days later. And He was wonderful in His ascension, for He went to the Father and said, in like manner, I'll return, and we're waiting for His coming. He is wonderful and more than wonderful. He is the counselor who can solve all your issues and all your problems. He's the mighty God who can do all things and reveal that through His life and His work. He's the eternal Father He was not created by God, he was God. And he was with God when all the world was created, he is eternal God. And he is the Prince of Peace, who gives peace to your heart and my life, and who will eventually bring peace to this world. One reason the Jews will not receive Jesus is because they said when the Messiah comes, there will be peace in Israel. And whenever he comes a second time, there will be peace in Israel. But when he came in his first advent that we have been celebrating and we have been recognizing when he came in his first advent, he came to bring peace peace not to the world, but peace in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls, and to give you the gladness, the gladness of God. Last thing, verse 7, last phrase. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. He's the one who's going to do it all. Amen. And you know why he's going to do it? Because of him. (laughs) He he loves us. He does so many good things to us. But you know why he does really what he does? Because of him. And, And that word zeal, another translation is the word jealousy. Because of the jealousy of God. You know what God is jealous? God is jealous for his glory. God is jealous for all things to be made right. God is jealous that this world that he created, and when he created it, it, says it is good, and it is very good. And when man and old Satan comes along and messes it up, God will never be satisfied until he makes all things right and all things new. And for his glory, for his purpose, for his plan, he will accomplish all of these things. And you and I get to be blessed by it. Amen. You and I get to be blessed by it. And here's the question. Do you have that gladness of heart? You're supposed to. Amen. You should have a gladness of heart in the presence of God. His very presence gives you a gladness of heart. Why? Because he broke the yoke of slavery of sin in your life. Because he defeated the old enemy who was the evil shepherd who used his staff and rod against you. You should be glad. And it's not what you did. It's what he did. Totally, absolutely what he did for his glory and for his honor. And you don't have to fight anymore. The battle is over. The war is done. He has accomplished everything he needs to accomplish That you might be glad. If there's a season of the year that we ought to be glad, it ought to be Christmas. Amen. Amen. Whenever the Lord Jesus Christ came and the fulfillment of what Isaiah said in Isaiah 9 came to pass. That that light and the glory of God will shine on a dark land. That you might see and you might understand the Messiah, the Redeemer, The Savior of the world has come. Has He come to you? I hope and pray that He has. If not, you need to give your heart today to Christ. He is the Savior. He's the Redeemer. He's your hope. And He wants to give you gladness in your heart.
0: That concludes this week's message from Brother Mac. Additional sermons and reference materials are available from our website, at parkermemorial.com/sermon-series Jesus said, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. I have overcome the world. We can help you know the one who can bring you peace. Find us on Facebook and Twitter. At Parker Memorial Baptist Church, as well as our website at ParkerMemorial.com. May God bless you until we meet again.